Amen. So Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14, we read the passage already. Um, and I just want to say that this, what we see here in this passage, this is a struggle. But the struggle goes way beyond just a satanic struggle. A father and his son wrestling with this stubborn demon that apparently is uh, pretty powerful. And he's not going anywhere. So there's a demonic struggle, there's a satanic struggle going on here, but if that's the only thing you took away from this passage, I think you'd be missing something really critical and important because the bigger struggle, the larger struggle, is the struggle with belief. You could call it the struggle with doubt. And if we're honest, everyone in this room, if we're honest, that's something all of us have been faced with at some time or another. Some to greater and more uh, persistent and stubborn degrees than others, but we've all confronted that fight. Because listen, Christianity is a fight. Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, the Bible says it all over the place. Fight the good fight of faith. We're compared to soldiers, farmers, athletes. Words in Greek are used for Christians like uh, gymnosio, gymnasio. There's like this, this training, this agony. It's a fight. It's a fight. We have armor on. We just did a series on that. But the question is this, what's the fight for? We talk about struggling and fighting. What are we fighting for? A lot of people would say the fight is to obey. It's, it's, to, it's for obedience. You've got to suppress your will and bring it into dominion and uh, under control. And, and that would be true to an extent. But I would say let's go deeper. Let's reach back further. What motivates obedience? What controls our actions? It's what you believe, right? Faith, the Bible says, is the power. Faith should precede our obedience. So the real fight that Christians face on any given day at any given minute of any day is the fight for faith, the fight for belief. And so to confess that is also to confess this. We all struggle with doubt because nobody has perfect faith. Well, one person did. One person had perfect faith and it wasn't anybody in this room except Jesus. He's here, hopefully. We pray he is, right? Jesus is the only human being who ever had perfect faith, untarnished, the purest form without any impurities in it. So all of us, uh, we have impurities. We could confess with this Father, I believe, but help my unbelief. So I want to talk a little bit about doubt this morning, and we'll jump right into the outline. Um, here's the outline. Very simple. The title of the sermon is Help My Unbelief. The outline is one, the condition of doubt. We're going to talk about the condition a little bit because the Father had it. I'm really zeroing in on this passage. It's long, it's lengthy, but I'm zeroing in on just that one verse. I think it's verse... Uh, I think 24, where he says, I believe, help my unbelief. We're going to zero in on that. It's condition. Secondly is the cause. The cause. What causes our doubt? We have them. We acknowledge them. We own up to it. Where do they come from? Where do they come from? And thirdly, what's the cure? So the condition of doubt, the cause of doubt, and then the cure for doubt. First is the condition. Doubt is a feeling. And it's a very disturbing feeling. It's very unsettling when you have it when it assaults you, and, and a lot of the times it, it can come out of nowhere. And a lot of people have compared doubt to a feeling of vertigo, which has killed people. That's deadly. It's this uh, inner ear problem, but if you're flying an airplane, it becomes uh, dramatically more important. In fact, a lot of people attribute Kennedy's crash and death to he, him having vertigo. You know what that means? It means your experience is telling you one thing, and your mind is telling you something completely different. You know, you have an instrument panel when you fly an airplane, right, Mark? And your instruments, I'm told that one of the cardinal rules of flying is always, always trust your instruments. You may feel like you're so high above that mountain range, man, you've got, you've got a mile of safety. And the instrument says, 
pull up, pull up, pull up, you know? Um, so there's this experience, there's this contradiction between what you feel and what you know to be true. That's doubt. It's disturbing, it's unsettling, and it's confusing. I can remember when I was a kid, I loved to climb trees. I think my boys get that habit from me. They climb way up in a tree, but they don't do what I did. I would get stuck. I'd get stuck. Now, I know how I got up there, and I know that the way down is this, the way backwards that I went up, right? But I would have to call my mother, and I don't know how mom always heard, and she would come out there, and she would look up, and it was like a, uh, you know, you sink my battle you sink my battleship. You ever played that game? She would say left leg down, two pegs, you know, like A3. She would have to tell me, literally, climb me down backwards um, because my mind knew that there was a branch there and there and there, but my experience was I'm going to fall and I'm going to die. So my mom had to walk me down. She had to back me down. And doubt is the same way. See, we know in our mind that God's sovereign, don't we? We know that. The Bible says that. The Bible says that. God is uh, on his throne, he does as he pleases. He has absolute, unrivaled, unchallenged power. He's the king of every creature, visible, invisible, under the ocean, in the skies. Every, there's no, as R.C. Sproul said, there's no maverick molecule anywhere that's outside of the dominion and the authority and the sovereignty and power of Jesus. We know that, but the doubt comes in, in, in this form. Is God really in control of my life right now? Because it sure doesn't feel that way. I know he is. I know it up here. I know it says it in here, but I'm not feeling it right now. You feel me? You ever been there? Sure doesn't feel like, this feels like a train wreck to me. My life feels like a dumpster fire right now. And you're telling me God said it or he can't put it out or, or what? There's the truth, the knowledge, and then there's the experience that contradicts it. So God's sovereign. And here's another one. Um, here's another one. God is good. I know he's good. I know he's benevolent. I know he's a kind God. He's a gracious God. Nature shows me that. The Word tells me that. History in the Bible shows me how gracious he is. But does God care about me right now in this moment? I mean, cancer sure doesn't feel like God's good. Divorce, abandonment, sure I'm not feeling God's goodness experientially. The sensory experience is contradicting what I know to be true of him. See, God's sovereign, I know that, but is he in control of my life right now? God's good, I know that, but is he caring for me right now? And here's the other one. God is wise. I know that. I know God knows the, the end from the beginning. He knows all things. His wisdom would make quantum physics look like, you know, vacation. I shouldn't say it that way. Yeah, God's, God's wise and intelligent, okay? I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but... This God, is God really thought this through? What's going on in my life right now? You know, is this, is this uh, the omniscience of God on display here? I know he's omniscient. I know he knows all things, but I'm not feeling it. I'm not seeing it. I'm not experiencing it. So that's what doubt is. And we had those doubts all the time. And here's, here's the million dollar question. What do you do with that doubt when you have it? We all have it. We know it. And it assaults us. Nobody goes looking for doubt most of the time, Right? I mean, when you go to college, depending on which one you go to, you may very well be doing that. <laughs> um, but I rest, you know, I digress. What happens when doubt finds you? You usually don't go looking for it. It looks for you and it finds you and it assaults you and cococks you, sucker punches you, gut punches you. What do you do? Well, that depends. That depends. Some people will tell you, if you ask a religious person, and I use that term kind of loosely in a negative way, okay, 
If you ask a religious person, what do I do with my doubt? They would say, oh, goodness, suppress it. Put a cork on that thing. Don't talk about it. Don't write about it. Don't think about it. Just squash it. Uh, it's not good. You don't want to mention that to anybody. You're going you're to unsettle some people, um, especially don't let the leaders in the church find out about it. Suppress it, you know. Get rid of it. Make it go away. Or it, even some people will tell you, just pretend it's not there. Just smile. If anybody asks you, say, yes, I'm not sad. I'm not depressed. I'm not doubting. Every day's a Friday here. Everything's perfect. I'm doing fine. You ever been in a church like that before? Man, that's not, church is not a safe place to talk about doubt for many people. Man, it pains me as a pastor. 43 years old, I've been in ministry 15 years, I've been a Christian for about 22 years. And I've got to be honest with you and tell you that a lot of churches, they are not a safe place to talk about your doubt. Because you may get just hammered. Definitely, a lot of churches don't treat doubt and doubters the same way that Jesus did, as we'll see in this story. So religious people will tell you, squash it, suppress it, cork it, bottle it up, keep it inside. Man, that's terrible advice for anything, isn't it? So what, what would a secular, I hate to even use dichotomies like this because they're really false, but what would a secular, unbelieving, non-religious, non-churchy person tell you to do? They're like, oh, this is great. I finally found one. Listen, doubt's beautiful. Uncork that thing. Write a blog. Make a movie. <laughs> Write it in your journal and publicize it. Make it public domain. Hold a sign in front of the church that says, Doubt is beautiful. Welcome here. You know, um, Uncork the bottle. Let it flow like wine. So a religious person will tell you, Doubt's a terrible thing. It's dangerous. Cork it. Suppress it. Non-religious, secular person will tell you, um, Man, let it fly. Let it out. So those are two extremes. So what do you do? What do you do? Do you cork it or do you uncork it? Talk about it with everybody or talk about it with nobody? Which one? Neither. Do neither of those. Man, the Bible is so balanced when it comes to these kinds of things. I've been so encouraged to share this message with you. You know what the Bible says you do? You take your doubt, you acknowledge it, you confess it, and then you go to a place of power with it. You go to a place, or really a person, as we'll see, that can actually do something about that doubt. You know? That's what the Bible says about doubt. You don't pretend it's not there. You don't vent your spleen to the whole world. And the Bible says that. The Bible says something like this. A fool vents all his feelings. That's actually in the Bible. A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. It doesn't say corks them. It just says you're careful who you share your doubt with. That's, that's wisdom, right? You take it to God. You take your doubt to Christ. That's what you do with it. So let's start there. Doubt is a real condition. You shouldn't hide it. You shouldn't vent it. Don't suppress it or ignore it. Don't flaunt it. Don't give it complete control of your life. Process it before God. Because listen, doubts are dangerous things, but doubts can also be powerful things. They're a dangerous place to live, but they can be a really powerful, catalyzing place to grow. And I'll prove it to you by, by telling you, uh, giving you a couple examples. I would bet most of you know this passage in the Bible because you've probably seen it framed like art and stenciled on somebody's wall in their house. It's a Christian. It says, um, Who, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Yeah, it's a great passage, isn't it? You know where it comes from? 
Psalm 73, the very last part of that psalm. Do you know who wrote that psalm? A man named Asap. And that psalm is all about Asap's doubt. He is in serious trouble because he's beginning to doubt God's goodness, God's sovereignty, God's love. And he writes about it. You've got to admire this. I mean, you're like, well, I thought you said you don't, you don't vent your spleen. You don't. Well, listen, the book of Psalms is just a prayer journal. It's all it is. It's a privilege to be able to read some of those men's private journals because they're inspired, right? But that man is in serious trouble. His foot's slipping. He's falling down. He's moving away from the Lord. And he writes about it. And he says, man, I was like a, I was like a wild animal before you, God. I was envying wicked people. I was wanting to be like them. I was questioning your sovereignty and your goodness. And then one day, I went to church. <laughs> I went to church and I gained perspective. You know, I will say this. You know, the true test of whether you've really been to a good church, I know I'm putting myself in the ringer here, right? Do you want to know the true test of whether you've been to church or not? Even when you leave here, ask yourself this question. It's not whether you felt better, okay? Religion is not a placebo. It's not a pill you take. It's whether or not you gained understanding. That's the real test. Because the very end of that Psalm 73 is ASAP. He gained understanding. He had confusion. He had doubt. He had spiritual vertigo. He took his doubt to the Lord, and God gave him perspective and transformed his thinking and renewed his mind and changed his heart. But listen, here's my point. One of the most powerful, beautiful passages in the Bible that belongs on your wall came out of the crucible of doubt. Thank God Asap didn't cork his doubt and zip his lip and put his pen down and say zit to anybody. Thank God he took his doubt to the Lord, processed it, and was transformed because we can be helped by his experience, right? But he's not even the most famous doubter. You know who the most famous doubter in the Bible is? I'll give you a hint. He's got my name. Thomas, that's right, man. We get all the baggage. Peeping Tom, doubting Thomas. Um, but listen, Thomas was a doubter from way back. I mean, the guy was skeptic. He was a skeptic. He was suspicious and cynical. And all the disciples saw the resurrected Jesus, but Thomas wasn't there. I don't know where he was, but he wasn't there. And he says, I'm not going to believe it until I see my risen Lord and I see his nail-pierced hands and I handle him. I, I mean, he, was, he had a condition list, you know. He said, unless I see him, touch him, hear his voice, put my finger in his side where the spear was, I ain't going to believe it. And you got to think, most people's view of Jesus, they would think, oh man, when Jesus comes back, he's going to get you, Thomas. How can you be so faithless? All the things you've seen and heard and experienced. And Jesus one day shows up. Poof, he walks through a walk door. All the disciples there and Thomas is there. And you're thinking, this is going to be showdown at the OK Corral. But it's not. You know what Jesus said? He said, Thomas, come here. Come here, Thomas. I know you're a doubter. And this is a really great opportunity. How's Jesus going to treat a doubter? Because everyone's on the edge of their seat reading this. Like, I'm a doubter. How's... He's going to treat me the same way he treats Thomas. And he says, Thomas, come here. Look at my hands. Touch them. Look at my side. Put your finger in there, Thomas. And you know what Thomas says? He says, my Lord and my God. That is one of the clearest, most articulate expressions of the deity of Christ. That's a theological term that means Jesus is God. And you know where it came from? One of the biggest doubters in the New Testament. And you know what it came out of? Him taking his doubt to the right person. Because if you cork your doubt, it's going to fester. And it's going to jack your life up. It will. But 
If you take your doubt, process it in the presence of God, and take it to Christ, it can become a very powerful place for you to grow and for others to see you and experience that same kind of growth. So Thomas says that. And then Jesus says this, don't be in doubt any longer, Thomas. In other words, I know you're a doubter. I've given you the evidence you need. Now let's move on past the doubt. See, that's what he's trying to do. He did that with Thomas. He did it with Asap. Asap wrote 11 chapters in the book of Psalms. You would think, uh, I don't know. Still, though, I'm not convinced. Doubting, it's, it's, it's pretty sinful. It's a pretty grotesque thing. It's disgusting. And, well, one of the doubters in the Old Testament, God let him write 11 chapters. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> You know, if we, were, if we were God, we would edit that stuff out because we want only the pure, purely faithful people writing Scripture, right? Well, then go find yourself another religion, <laughs> right? Because we're all flawed, folks. We are. We all have weak faith, and God knows that. He understands that. That's why this event is recorded in the Bible for us. So, um, I know there's some passages in the Bible that may read like the diary of a wimpy Christian, but they're there for a reason. They're there to strengthen and encourage our faith and let us know we are not alone in this fight for faith. We're not alone. There's been scores of other Christians just like us who have been helped, and we can be helped too. So doubt is a real condition. There are many other people who have doubted before you. And listen, Jesus does not despise a doubter if he's fighting, if he's in agony like this father was in this story. You know what Psalm 51 verse 17 says? It says, a broken heart he will not despise. A broken and a contrite heart he will not despise. That's a pretty staggering thing to consider. If you're a doubter, you're like, I don't know, God's angry. He's not gonna, he, he won't listen to my prayer. He won't, he won't have me. He knows I'm just not the real deal. I'm not genuine. I'm struggling with this belief. No, the Bible says if you have a broken heart over that, he's not going to despise you. It never says that about he'll never despise a devoted prayer life, you know, or something like that. We think those things. No, it says he'll never despise a broken heart. You're guaranteed access to God if you are a broken person. I mean, show me another religion in the world like that. It's like, no, no, no. You've got to get yourself together, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, put on your best face, and then go, go to the God. <laughs> Every other religion's like that, but not Christianity. He doesn't despise a broken heart. So, that's point one. That's point one. Um, is that the condition of doubt. And here's point two, the, the cause of doubt. And listen, I want to be very specific here, okay? I know that unbelief is a sin in and of itself. I know that. I know there's people who mocked Jesus, crucified him. There's, uh, the Bible says don't cast your pearls before swine. Talking about the gospel, it's so precious. Don't just throw it out there to people who are scorning it, making fun of it, mocking it. I know that kind of unbelief is a sin, but I'm not talking about that kind of unbelief. I'm talking about the kind of doubt that we see in this passage with this father. And I think that we can kind of, if we, if we study this passage and look at it, we can get underneath what causes this kind of doubt and we can learn from it. Because I've had this kind of doubt and you've had this kind of doubt too. So what led this man to possess this doubt? Uh, I'm going to mention two things. First is the severity of his case. And I know it's his son's case, but listen, if you have a family, and the Bible says this was this father's only son, it was his only son, just like God had his only son. This man had an only son, and he was absolutely in agony over what this demon had done to him for many years. We don't know how long. That can cause you to be in serious doubt. It's a crisis, an emergency, or just this perplexing condition. 
of your life. Your life does feel like maybe it's a dumpster fire. You're like, where is God at? I've got this conflict that's so defined, so pronounced, so painful to me. It hurts to even think about it. It hurts to get out of bed. There's some Christians right now, I know, getting out of bed is a challenge for them. They're so depressed. They're so sad. They're in agony. And they're beginning to doubt, where is God in all of this? And you say, where did their doubt come from? It's just the crisis that they're in, the crisis they're facing. Some of you have known that. Some of you know that now. If there's a desertion by somebody that you trust and you love, or maybe there's just uh, extended and pronounced loneliness, or financial collapse, or a health issue, or the death of somebody that, that you loved and were close to, those things can really tailspin you into doubt. They can. That happened with this man. Look at the passage. Look what it says here. It says, In verse 17, and someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, faithless generation, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground. He rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Oh, my word. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Now, try and wrap your mind around this. Luke talks about this. He's a doctor. He wrote a gospel account. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're in Mark. Luke wrote about this, and Matthew wrote about it. And you take all the pieces and you put it together, this kid's in trouble. This demon is trying to kill him. By the way, that's what Satan wants for everybody. You know that, right? Ultimately, what Satan wants is to destroy every human being who bears the image of God. Because it's a painful reminder of who his Lord and, and authority is. And he hates that. Every time he sees a human being, he sees the face of his enemy, and he hates it. And I, I think the, he thinks, Satan knows that getting a, a child, <laughs> I mean, so helpless, so innocent. I think that's why you see so many cases of children being afflicted by demons in the New Testament. But you take all those uh, pieces from Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, this spirit somehow was able to make this child deaf and mute. So he couldn't talk, and he couldn't hear. And on top of that, he's thrown into fires, he's thrown into water. There would have been little bodies of water all over Palestine. So think about it. I mean, I have a two-year-old child right now, okay, toddler, and a newborn who can't crawl yet. Thank God he can't crawl yet. But I got a two-year-old toddler, and, you know, there was a five-year gap between uh, when Marshall was a baby and Tyler being a baby, and I'm having to relearn again child-proofing my house because everything's a threat. I pour a hot cup of coffee this morning, early in the morning, finishing up my sermon. It's just close enough to the edge. I, oh, I, got, I got to fix that. Tyler's going to reach up and he'll scald and melt his face forever and it'll be my fault. You know, everything's a threat. I, it's like I almost have to, and Sarah too, we have to go around the house and can you imagine if you had a little child, I don't know how old the kid was, maybe he was a toddler, and if there's water anywhere or if there's fire anywhere, there's a demon and he's going to throw that kid in there. And you can't say, hey, watch out, because he can't hear you. He's deaf because of the demon. You can't, uh, he can't communicate to you his despair and his hopelessness or ask for help because he can't talk. 
I mean, do you see? This is pretty severe. Now, be honest. Be honest. If this was your only child, and you had watched this from the time that he was a little boy, you think you would be doubting? Do you think that would be a legitimate and understandable thing? It's like, hey, Chuck over here doubts God's goodness because, you know, his kid. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, man, demons, this is... And, and, and here's the interesting thing about this. There are actually some people who read this and they say, that's hogwash. That's a classic case of epilepsy. He's got grand, you see grand mal seizures here. You see rigidness. And it's like, hang on a minute. Time out, dude. <laughs> Time out. Um, there's other cases of epilepsy in the Bible where Jesus healed them. And then there's this, and it says expressly that a demon did this. I mean, even the dad is attributing these seizures and all the, the malicious things that are happening to a demon. I've never heard of epilepsy throwing somebody in a fire, you know, or throwing somebody into water uh, or pounding their head. It's interesting, the Greek verb that Luke uses, it says the demon shatters him, shatters him. It's a word that means crushes, tries to maul him. One, pass, one commentary I read, uh, the guy said, you know, in football today, you, you're allowed three concussions and that's it. You can't play anymore because it's so dangerous. Think of this kid, man, walking around. I don't know if they had a helmet back then they could put on him, but he's, he may be this close to death. How many concussions has he had? It's this demon trying to kill him over and over. But God preserved his life. Why? Well, I think it was like the blind man in John chapter 9 to reveal the glory of Christ one day. So we could, we could sit here this morning... 2018 in Central Florida, read this story and be encouraged and hope could be cultivated in us. God said, I'm not, he's not yours. I'll let you have a measure of control because Satan is God's devil, like Martin Luther said. And one day my son is going to walk into his life, invade his life and show you power and glory. I think that's why he was allowed. But, but think about that. How severe. So what, what emergency would cause you to, excuse me, would cause you to doubt? We've all faced them. I faced them. We all have a crisis that comes in our life and it sends us on a tailspin. So very often is the case that that causes doubt, the severity of the case. And here's, here's another thing that causes doubt. And I got to tell you, man, this is not a flattering thing for a pastor to talk about. You know what the other thing is? The failure of the church. The failure of the church. Look what happened here. Look at this verse. Teacher, it's interesting, when Jesus comes, comes back, they're all fighting. They're all, they're all arguing. Um, by the way, I missed an opportunity to help you understand this more. Check this out. Do you see this up here? Just go back to the last point. I'm sorry. My bad. Go back to the last point. Um, the crises, just to help you understand it, any given moment, people, the, the, the issues that they face, the pain, the agony that they experience. The other day I found some termites. Uh, in our house. They were eating the floor I installed. Can't believe it, man. Some hungry little critters. And I found them. I, my son actually found them. He said, Dad, look. And he poked his finger through the, uh, through the wood and, and a gazillion termites swarmed. Now, I'm a carpenter and I know a little bit about what to do, but you don't mess with termites, right? <laughs> so I did what any of you would do. I got on Google and I typed in these words. Can you see it? What to do when you discover. And then my Google thing did what probably many of, of yours does, and it guessed what I was going to say next. You know how Google guesses what you're going to type next? Because it's what everybody else in the world types. Uh, man, I hope this is making sense. It's, it's able to predict what you're going to type because everybody else types this. So this is what people around the world that use Google and type in what to do when you discover, this is what they type next. 
bed bugs, black mold, your husband is having an affair, uh, termites is in there, thankfully, your child is cutting, your child is using drugs, infidelity, lice, head lice, your child is smoking pot. And I saw that at first, uh, and I thought, oh my goodness, man, that's, and then I started to think, oh my goodness, people are facing this kind of stuff every day, every single day, Christians too. And what do you do? I mean, by the way, Google doesn't have in here in this list what to do when you discover that your child is demon-possessed. Uh, but this father experienced that. And all that to say, there's so many crises that we face, even if we think we're strong. Oh, I'm pastor, you don't understand. I've got a really bold faith. And it's been tested many times. And I'm, oh, wait a minute, time out. How old are you? <laughs> are you married? Do you have kids? Okay, just, you know, <laughs> stand by. <laughs> you know, you will eventually face your crises. You will. The book of Job says, man is full of trouble as the sparks fly upward. And Jesus said, you must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of heaven. So, um, going back to the second point now. Second point. The, the severity of his case. The first one was, uh, yeah, how severe his case was. Now the second point in the, sub-point in the second point, I'm sorry. Guys, it's one of those mornings, isn't it? is this, the church. Sometimes people doubt because the church has failed them. And this is an unflattering thing for me to talk about as a pastor, but look what happens here. He, uh, Jesus asked them, when he comes down the mountain, he says, what are you arguing about? Because the scribes are there, the disciples are there, the father's there, and his son's there. And he says, what's going on here? What are you arguing about? And nobody says a word. Now, why do you think nobody said anything? This is, this is so cool, man. The Bible is not boring, guys. Put yourself in that situation. These disciples were there. Jesus wasn't. He was up on the mountain of transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. The powerhouse, they're all up there. The disciples are down here. A, a father with a son who's demon-possessed is desperate, and he's trying to find Jesus. Oh, Jesus isn't here right now. I'm sorry. He's on the mountain. Don't know when he'll be back. Can we help you? Yes, you can. I've got this child who's demon-possessed. And the disciples look at each other and they say, that's not a big deal. You know what? Jesus gave us authority. We've been casting out demons since chapter 6 back here. You remember? Mark chapter 6, Jesus gave them authority over all demons, right? And they've been casting them out left and right. They had it down to a science. Hocus pocus, abracadabra, they were out. And so the guy says, great, man, because nobody else has been able to help me. The Pharisees couldn't, the scribes, the lawyers, Herod, Pilate, nobody. Uh, so my, my only hope is Jesus. And they're like, well, we don't even need Jesus. He's up there, but, but we'll handle this. And so they do, abracadabra, hocus pocus, get out. And the demon says, ha, 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 who do you think you are? I'm not going anywhere. Kind of embarrassing, right? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you be embarrassed if you were one of those disciples? And you say, uh, <laughs> kind of nervously chuckle and say, I'm, I'm sorry, it's never, this has never happened before. Uh, Andrew, why don't you give it a go? <laughs> you know? And then Jesus walks down. And can you imagine, though, what was happening? Try to imagine. Last week, I think I showed you a picture that Raphael painted of the transfiguration. I can't find any good art on the transfiguration. Nobody seems to be able to capture what happened up there. But look, Raphael's painting. It's so tall, I couldn't put the whole thing on there. So I cut it in half for you. The left side is the glory of Jesus and Moses and Elijah and the disciples up there. They're surrounded by glory and bright, dazzling, brilliant light that's blinding. They're in the she Shekinah glory of Christ. And then over on the right side, you can barely see it. 
It's the bottom half of the painting, and there's darkness, there's confusion, there's evil, there's a demon, there's anger, there's bickering. Kind of like the church. <laughs> it's kind of like what happens in the church a lot of the time. When somebody actually comes to the church for help, they experience what this father who brought his son experienced. Really, I think it's a parable of what people experience. In fact, I, uh, it's, I think Raphael, the one thing he got right, that's the father in the painting, and that's his demon-possessed son under him. You see his face? He's like, are you kidding me? This is not what I heard would happen when I brought my son to Jesus for help. And that's what happens to a lot of people when they come to church. They hear this amazing place. There's good news here. People are loving. They serve you. There's a message that's brought. They'll meet your needs. You can share your weaknesses. You can talk about your doubt and your sins. You can come as you are. And then they go to these amazing places that are supposed to exist. And what do they find? Heartache. Hypocrisy, abuse, spiritual abuse, sometimes maybe physical abuse, maybe sexual abuse, bad counseling, do better, try harder, legalism. Yeah, those things exist in churches all over the place because they exist in our hearts sometimes, right? I would have loved to have been there and, and watched what these disciples and what these scribes were telling this father. You try, Andrew, I can't. Well, it's probably because he doesn't have enough faith. They probably said that. You know you got some secret sin you're hiding, mister. What is it? What'd you do? What'd you do to cause your son to be this vulnerable and susceptible to demonic control? What's your secret? What's your dirty secret you're holding? Can you imagine? And then the scribes, they go at it. You're not doing it right. We can do it. You can do it. And then Jesus comes and he says, what in the world's going on here? It's interesting because look, I mean, you got to kind of put the pieces together here, but in verse uh, 15, look at 14. And, and when they, that's Jesus, Peter, James, and John, came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And look at verse 15. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, that is Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. You know, I like to study sometimes the Greek verbs and nouns in here. And this verb in Greek, they were greatly amazed. It's so over the top. And I could never figure out, why did Mark use this word in Greek? There's, a, there's 10 other words in Greek that are like, they were really happy to see Jesus. They were thankful that Jesus finally came down. They've been waiting. No, this is like, they were, blown, they were so happy. They were, they were like so grateful. They couldn't believe that Jesus was finally here and they rushed him like a celebrity. Now that I've studied this passage, I know why. I know why. They're like, finally, somebody that can actually help us. Will you scribes and disciples just shut up and let Jesus talk? Let Jesus handle this. Man, the church hurts people all the time. And I'm not down on the church. I'm not telling you to be down on the church. We are God's plan A. There is no plan B. In all of our sinfulness and flaws and weaknesses, God loves us. He redeemed us. We're a messed up bunch of people, but we're his bride and he loves us. All I'm saying is the church represents Christ. And there are so many people that come to the church for help and they don't get help. They get pain and agony and hurt. And that causes them the doubt. I mean, look at this father. You know why he was unbelieving? Because he already brought his son to the disciples and they couldn't do anything. So he's doubting, well, maybe God can help me. Nobody else could. This is one of those demons, I guess, that's just more powerful than God. Or maybe I do have secret sin. Maybe I don't have enough faith. 
That would be tragic if he left before Jesus came, wouldn't it? I remember a young man in a church I went to. I was in my 20s. And, and this teenager um, respected me. We had a lot of things in common. He was, you know, he loved sports. He loved working out at the gym. He was really all, he was into himself. We had a lot in common, you know, I'm being honest. Back then I was really into my, I mean, I still am. But anyway, that's another sermon for another day. So he came to me and he said, man, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling, you know. And I started meeting with him and the leaders were like, that's great. Finally, somebody he can talk to. So back then, I had a really simple understanding of, of biblical counseling. The Bible says A, and you're doing B. Um, what's the problem here? Repent. You're rebellious. This is rebellion. Come on, get it together. That was my counsel. I thought it was simple. I thought it was a great plan. You know, the Bible says obey. You're disobeying. Schmack, schmack, schmack. Get it together, buddy. What's the problem here? Come on. I did that to everybody, and I did it especially with him. Especially with him. I didn't take the time to listen to him. I didn't take the time to ask about his home life. Ask about his health. You know, I'll make this, this is a long story. I'm going to make it really short. He was being abused in his home, physically abused. His home was a nightmare, a nightmare. Being homeless would have been better for him. I didn't know because I didn't take the time to ask, and I didn't take the time to listen. And man, I really gave that, that young man some terrible counsel, terrible counsel. You know what? He left the church. And you know what I did? He couldn't handle the truth. He couldn't handle the truth. Rebellious, repugnant, you know. He abandoned the Lord. The Lord didn't abandon him. All those things I used to tell myself. Well, when we planted this church, I found him on Facebook and I reached out to him. And he was like a, a, a dog that had been beat. And I was like a rolled up newspaper when I reached out. Hey, so-and-so. You know, I said, hey, man, I've been thinking about you. And he was like, uh. He said, I'm not ready to talk to you right now. Digitally, he was typing that. And I said, man, this guy, I really hurt him. So back and forth, back and forth. He, he left the church. He left Christianity. I don't think he's ready to come back. And I know, ultimately, God's sovereign all, over all those things. But man, I bear a large part of the blame for his doubt. Because I represented Jesus to him. And I hurt him. And he's still reeling from it. It's terrible. It's terrible for me to have to admit that to you. That's the truth. I didn't understand the gospel uh, well enough then to be trying to counsel people. I didn't get it. So, yeah, moving on here. There's scandals, there's greed. Every, every week I see another, it seems like, some celebrity pastor or well-known pastor and they ran off with the secretary or they, they got this secret sin that got exposed and it's just horrible to see it. And that causes a lot of people to doubt. And as the church, we have to understand that. You have to understand why people are so put off sometimes. Because when they see us, they may not read their Bible, they read us though. And sometimes we're, we give a distorted image of who Jesus is and how he views their problems. Number three, this is the last thing, the cure for doubt. Now how does Jesus handle, handle this man? Well, it's interesting to me that the first thing he does is he, he says, what are you arguing about? And then nobody else will talk, duh. So the man says, well, listen, I brought my son. He's demon-possessed. Nobody can help him. And then Jesus does something really strange. He asks this man a question. He says, how long has this been happening? See, he, he listened to the man. He asked the question. He didn't say, you idiot. Why didn't you, why didn't you find me last week? If it's been happening all along, I was here just last week in Caesarea Philippi. Why didn't you? He didn't say any of that. He said, how long has this been happening? Why did, he, why did Jesus ask that? Did he know? Did Jesus know how long this had been happening? <laughs> yeah. He knows the hairs on your head. 
He knows the thought that you never even articulated or expressed. He knows the beginning from the end. This wasn't for Jesus to gain new information. This was for this man to be able to tell his story and for him to know, listen, you're not coming to some force that's divorced from personality. You're coming to a human being who is a person and who is compassionate and who cares. Who cares? So he tells a story, paints this terrible picture, and when he gets to the end, look what he says here. He says, this has been happening uh, from childhood. It's often cast in the fire, the water destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. This word he uses for help in Greek, it means come running to our aid and help us. And he says, have compassion. Splank nidzomai. That's a $25 word there in Greek. And that's one of those words in Greek, in Greek that you say it, and, and the way you say it, it almost tells you what it means. Splank nidzomai. It's your guts, your visceral. He's saying, have compassion on us. Can you feel pity for us? Because nobody else has. Have you ever been just so wrecked? You felt like somebody just kicked you in the gut? You ever been dumped by somebody, maybe, when you were younger? <laughs> or maybe when you were older? Man, it hurt, just your gut just tears you up. And the guy says, Jesus, have compassion. One of my seminary professors says, the best definition for compassion is your pain and my heart. Your pain and my heart. And he says, can you, have, can you run to my aid? Can you run and help us? And look what Jesus says. Because the, the guy set himself up here, didn't he? He says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, don't you love the Bible? Do you see that? He says, if, wait, what? Pardon me? If you can. He said, are you kidding me? I spoke the Milky Way into existence, man. <laughs> they, they say now that there are over 400 billion galaxies. Some of them we'll never see in my lifetime. We don't have powerful enough instruments to see it. Why? Because the Bible says the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And there's things we haven't even seen yet that are telling us the power and the majesty of God. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ spoke the universe into creation. All things consist in him. He's the head of all things. He's the glue that holds it all together. And this guy's got a little bitty demon problem. And he says, do you think you can do anything? And Jesus says, can I? He says, listen, the, the real question is, can you believe? Can you believe? This sounds like a challenge. It sounds like a challenge. Jesus is saying, yes, I can heal your son, no problem at all. But I'm only going to do it if you have faith. Everybody got quiet in here. That's, that's pretty much what he says. It doesn't say if in there, but you read into this, Jesus is saying, I can do it if you have faith. And you're saying, wait a minute, pastor, this was an encouraging sermon until you said that. What's Jesus doing here? Jesus is trying to show us something very valuable that you don't need to leave here and forget today. There is no such thing as perfect faith. There's no such thing as perfect faith. Okay? So it's not about the strength or the quality of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. You guys understand that? It's not the perfection of your faith. It's the direction of it. Just a little bit of faith directed at Jesus is all you need. Because faith means open-handed. It means open-handed. You are a beggar coming to God for help. And that's why the man cries out. He cries out and he says, The father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. 
And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, because sometimes things look worse before they get better, right? The boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And we're going to do the rest of that next, next time. But listen, Jesus didn't tell this man, oh, you, you have unbelief? Oh, stop, hang, hang on, guys. Uh, disciples get in the car. We're gone. I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry. See, I thought, I thought that you had perfect faith. I thought you could pull yourself together and that finally I could find somebody that actually believed I am who I said I am. So I'll tell you what, meditate about these things, think about them, and I'll come back next week and, and we'll see if you can pull some faith together, pull some trust together. He didn't say that. He's never said that. And he'll never say that. Ever. Because there's no such thing as perfect faith. Only one person had it. Jesus had it. Nobody else does. And listen, that's the difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world, to be honest with you. There's human effort in every other religion. How do you get to God? Human effort. Human effort. Christianity, how do you get to God? You don't. He, he comes to you. Divine accomplishment. Human effort, every other religion in the world. Christianity, divine accomplishment. Jesus is saying, I'll do the work. Just attach yourself to me in your weak, imperfect, flawed, doubting faith. Doubters are welcome. Jesus is not repulsed by doubt, okay? In fact, you could almost say he's attracted to it. Jesus is attracted to need, and doubt is a need if it's an agony. He says, I believe, but I know my belief is imperfect. This man had more faith than the scribes. He had more faith than the disciples. This is the only guy down there in that scene that Raphael painted that has any faith that's acceptable to God. I was telling somebody this yesterday. The disciples were trying to cast this demon out, and they expected that demon to leave. You know that, right? The disciples had expectations that that demon would obey their voice and, and exit the man. So, See, most people say, well, true faith is if you have expectations. No, it, it, that can't be right. Because this passage uh, nixes that, right? The disciples, they believed something would happen, but it didn't. So what's the problem? Well, what were they trusting in? They were trusting in themselves, right? You say, how do you know that? Well, we'll get to it next week. They didn't pray. Jesus said this kind comes out only with prayer and with fasting, other passages say. See, they had, they had gotten to the point where their faith, the power, the strength of their faith was in themselves. Now, I know nobody in here has ever experienced that, right? We all have faith connected, yeah, to, to Jesus. No, that's what this passage is about. This man said, I believe, but my belief is imperfect. Can you still help me? And Jesus says, I can work with that. I can work with that. He could do it then. He can do it now. Because Christianity says, come with an open hand. It's not your holiness that brings you into God's presence. You guys know that, right? It's not your holiness that attracts you to God or God to you. It's your helplessness. Acknowledging that, confessing that. That's Christianity. That's the gospel. It's like, Lord, help me. I believe, but help my unbelief. I need help. I need rescue. Come and help me. Run to the aid of my unbelief is what this man is telling him. So often... Now, I'm, I'm closing with this. So often, we're like the person that accidentally shoots himself in the guts, and he's trying to hold in the blood and the intestines. I know it's gross. And somebody there says, oh my goodness, call 911. And he says, no, don't do that. There's blood everywhere. It's disgusting. I, don't, I can't have a paramedic walk in the house. It's a mess. I haven't swept. So often, that's how Christians function. I'm serious. I'm serious. It's like, we need, call Jesus. It's like, no, no. I'd be embarrassed. It's like, call 911. No, we can't do that. 
Now, Jesus says, imperfect faith is the only kind of faith there is. Just make sure it's directed at me and, and we're in business. That's what he does. Jesus understands us. He knows our doubts. Do you know what most people doubt? You say that God's real, that God exists, da-da-da-da, this or that. No, the greatest challenge that most people have is this, what Martin Luther said. He said, it is very hard for a man to believe that God is gracious to him. The human heart cannot grasp this. You know what we doubt more than anything else? God's love. Does he really love us? Does he really care? And how does God answer that doubt that we have? God says, do you really want to know if I care for you? Uh, then look to the cross. Look to the cross. That's the only way we can bring our imperfect faith into his presence. It's because the one that had perfect faith was cast out of his presence, was hung on a cross and absorbed the wrath of God for us. He became something hideous so that we could become something beautiful. He was cursed by God so that we could be blessed by God. He was banished from God's presence so that we could be brought into God's presence and bring our weak faith. But our faith has to be attached to that person. And that's why we're, we're going to move into the Lord's Supper now. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come down here in just a second, but I want you to be thinking about God knows we doubt his love. He knows we forget the cross. So what does God do? He gives us a cross and he gives us a meal. This is a very tangible reminder. You know, we handle the bread, we taste the juice. We can't smell the blood and see the sight on the cross, hear the cries of Jesus, but we can experience this together. And nothing magical happens you know this doesn't become the actual body and blood of christ this is symbolic but it is a very powerful gift that god left to his church it's an ordinance to remind us that we belong to him and he belongs to us